This season of The Witch Wave is brought to you in part by Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab. Black Phoenix Alchemy Lab is a fragrance house specializing in body and household blends with a dark, romantic, gothic tone. Over the years, they've collaborated with some of my very favorite creative visionaries, including Neil Gaiman, Jim Jarmusch, the Jim Henson Company, and most recently, Junji Ito. They continually return to inspirations drawn from witchcraft, paganism, and mythology, and they also have a sister store called Twilight Alchemy Lab, which creates oils blended and consecrated specifically for ritual use. The lab recently released their annual Halloween perfume collection, a limited edition series which includes scents inspired by folklore accounts of lycanthropy. Customer reviews of their products can be found at the fanrunbpal.org web forum, and you can check out all of their perfumes and other enchanting concoctions over at blackphoenixalchemylab.com. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you by Witch Lit. Don't let your stories remain untold. The next Witch Lit online creative writing class is called The Witch with a Thousand Faces, Feminine Archetypes of Power, and it begins on January 8th. If that sounds intriguing to you, and I bet it does, you'll be enchanted to hear that you can now take 15% off all Witch Lit classes, mentorships, gift cards, and more with code WITCHWAVE over at www.witchlit.us. This special sale ends on December 31st of this year, which is 2023, so get your orders in soon. Again, use code WITCHWAVE at www.witchlit.us. Dot us for 15% off. And if you want to follow Witch Lit and its creator, Dr. Erica Anzalone, you can do so via Instagram at WitchLitUS. The world is filled with bewitching people, and you might be one too. Welcome to the podcast where art is magic, magic is real, and reality is stranger than dreams. I'm Pam Grossman, and this is The Witch Wave. And welcome to the Witch Wave. Ooh, it is that dark and sparkling time of year when here in the Northern Hemisphere, the nights grow longer, culminating in what will be the shortest day and longest night of the year, and which we celebrate as the winter solstice. 
Because of this darkness, there are so many festivals of light which happen around this time of year. We're talking Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, Yule. If we want to start counting in November, there's Diwali. And as part of each of these holy days, there is a tradition of burning candles, bonfires, Yule logs, anything to help illuminate our spirits and resurrect the sun. Because after solstice, which this year falls on Thursday, December 21st, the days do start to grow longer again, and that is certainly worthy of celebration. To that end, just a quick reminder that Jonica Stuckey and I will be leading an online solstice ritual workshop tomorrow, which is also Thursday, December 21st, if you're listening to this on the day the episode drops. And that starts at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and will be recorded if you can't make it live. So do sign up if you feel called to, and you'll see a link to get tickets in my Instagram bio or on my website, pamgrossman.com. It's going to be a really magical evening, and we would love to have you there. And I need it, because this start to winter has been hitting me hard. As you know and heard on the last episode with me croaking my way through it, Matt and I were really sick for a while, and that plus the darkness of the news and the shorter days in general have all just made me feel more anxious and more blue than usual. And so I'm very, very grateful that there are these festivals of light to focus on right now. And I know the holidays can be stressful, They certainly are for me, too. But this is a time of year when my witchcraft is particularly supportive because I have candles and rituals at the ready to remind me to take time in stillness and embrace the magic of the darkness and find whatever wisdom and wonder and peace there is to be found there. I'm also delighted that a prior Witchwave guest, Nina McLaughlin, has a gorgeous new book out called Winter Solstice, an Essay. This is the follow-up to her Summer Solstice book, which I quote from all the time, so I'm thrilled that she's focusing her mythical, lyrical writing on Winter Solstice now, And I've been finding this book to be such a comfort. I highly recommend it. It's a slim little volume, just a sparkling jewel. And I thought that I would read a little bit of it to you now. She writes, The year is fading. Light is fading. Solstice means sun stilled. We light candles and raise toasts. We smooch in doorways under strung-up plants. We hang lights along the roofline peaks, give gifts, make wishes, laugh and pray and fear. We bring the light into the earth and try to harness the great forces. It's a wild sort of stilling, a thrashing, frenzied sort of stilling, a stopping of time, a demetering, a holding of the breath as the tension builds, as the dark expands, 
until it cracks and the light drives in. That's the hope. The far-off tinkling of bells could be the harness of the reindeer or the bells around the neck of a goat. Hoofbeats on the roof, hoofbeats thudding in the warm and living hollow of your chest. Pomegranate, holly branch, birch switch, mistletoe. We'll leaf with life and pass below the secret places of this earth. Ah, she is the best. So yes, that book is just medicine for me right now, and I just know you're going to love it too. Speaking of descending below into the secret places of this earth, I could not be more excited about today's guest, Stephen Elcock, who is joining me in celebration of his new visual banquet of a book called Underworlds, A Compelling Journey Through Subterranean Realms. This book is stuffed with images of literal underworlds like caverns and sewers, mythopoetic afterlife underworlds like Hades and Hell, and the inner underworld of our unconscious. Words truly don't do this book and all of Stephen's other art books justice, but we certainly make our best attempt, and my gods, did I have fun doing it. But before we get to that, first, let's check and see what's come through on the witch wire. Who is it? Witches. I have a burning question about the proper pronunciations of the name Hecate. Now, I know there's more than one sort of canonized pronunciation, Hecate being one, Hecate being another, which is um, has the origin from Shakespeare's use of the name. Then there's also a more Greek-rooted version, Ekati. And on a recent trip to Greece, I heard Ekate. However, none of these is the version that's been popularized on social media as of late, which makes it sound like her name rhymes with a popular Mexican beer brand, Tecate. And I cringe so hard every time I hear someone say Hecate. I've done some research. I haven't found anything that validates this pronunciation. I want to know how this started, why we're going along with it, and if anyone actually has proof that this pronunciation with the emphasis on these particular syllables in this way is valid. I will say one of my good friends uses this version of her name in her practice, and I really don't want to dis- disrespect her um, simultaneously. I would really like to know why this started and if there's any actual validity to it or if people are just going along because they don't know what else to do. Hi there, and thank you so much for your question. And this is one that is very close to my dark little heart because I adore Hecate, the Greek goddess of magic and witchcraft, and I know many, many Witchwave listeners do too. So first of all, let me just say that I myself kind of switch between pronouncing Hecate and Hecate. 
I sometimes like going, hey, Hecate. And that's because I grew up in Jersey and sometimes my old regional dialect slips through, just like sometimes I still say coffee instead of coffee. It just happens. And those things happen to me on occasion with other words. You might notice sometimes I say deity and sometimes I say deity. Sometimes I say equinox and sometimes I say equinox. It's inconsistent and it just kind of depends how it comes out at any given time. But note that none of these pronunciations is wrong. You know, regional dialects are accurate. They just vary depending on person to person and where they're from. And even though regional accents and pronunciations have gotten a little bit more flattened thanks to the relative monoculture of film and TV, they haven't gone away. They haven't been eradicated. And that is certainly also true cross-culturally and intercontinentally as well. So Hecate, Hecate, Hecate are all totally acceptable. And just to verify this, I actually asked my friend and a prior Witch Wave guest, Brian Cotnoir, to weigh in because he is a devotee of Hecate or a devotee of Hecate, as well as an expert in several ancient languages. And here is an excerpt of what he wrote to me when I asked him this question. Brian writes, The standard ancient Greek pronunciation of Hecate is ekati or ekate. The first vowel is aspirated, giving it a kind of H sound. Stress is on the second to last syllable. And the ending vowel actually depends, and here he says, on the declension of the name, so the nominative form is different than the genitive. Anyway, you don't have to worry about that. The point is that there's some variation there. He goes on to say, Also adding to the various pronunciations are regional Greek accents. Look at the wide variations in American and British English for the same word like potato, potato, and you see that pronunciations shift. Add a couple of thousand years of cultural diffusion and language spread, and we end up with a lot of variant pronunciations, all correct within their own context. So in Elizabethan England, it becomes Hecate. And then he says, if you add in the linguistic insecurity we all have when it comes to pronunciation in general, along with the urge for authenticity and correctness, it can get a bit messy. One way to perhaps think about it and resolve it is to realize that context is everything. Among English speakers, my name is Brian. Among Czech speakers, it is Brano, and I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly. Some French friends call me Brian. I always understand an answer when called by those names. I feel the deities roll the same way. Just light some incense. They're easy. And of course, we can do what we do when we meet someone whose name we are unsure of pronouncing. We can politely ask them. 
So first of all, thank you so much, Brian, for weighing in. That is very, very helpful. And I think such a beautiful explanation of how difficult it is to know the exact pronunciations and also to give us all permission not to sweat it too much. And and this is reminding me when Madeline Miller was on the show a number of seasons back. This is the author of Song of Achilles and Circe. She said pretty much the same thing that you know, the pronunciations of ancient Greek are a little bit unclear and things vary so much, you know, depending on who is doing the pronunciation and it doesn't really matter. It's all pretty acceptable. So I hope that helps. All the pronunciations are fine in some and it sounds to me like Hecate or Hecate is close to the ancient Greek pronunciation as far as we know. But also, I just want to add with some tender love that your friend's practice is her practice. And so I would gently suggest that you give her some grace, even if she's pronouncing things differently than you might prefer. Because when it comes to these old names, as long as we're all doing our best to invoke them with reverence and love, I think the most important thing is that we're keeping them alive. And that is probably what's most important to Hecate, 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 too. Now, on to my guest. Stephen Elcock is a curator, writer, researcher, and online collector of images who has spent the last decade creating an ever-expanding virtual museum of art that is open to all via social media, attracting more than 600,000 followers worldwide. He is the author of many art books, including All Good Things, The Book of Change, and The Cosmic Dance. And he is co-author of England on Fire and Je Demain. His new book is Underworlds, a compelling journey through subterranean realms, real and imagined. And it is a truly dark, delightful feast for the eyes and the soul. Stephen joined me from his home in London via Zoom. Stephen Elcock, welcome to The Witch Wave. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm so happy that you're here. I am such a long-term admirer of you and your work, so this truly is a thrill. So listen, I always love the challenge of having visually oriented people on this show mm -hmm. because I think it's a fun sort of challenge to try to describe to people the imagery in which we are going to be sort of bathing for the duration yes. of this conversation. So just by way of introduction, how do you describe the work that you do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess what I've been attempting to do over the past decade or so is to create an ever-expanding like a virtual museum, like a, a digital cabinet of curiosities that tries to encompass every discipline from art to science, illustration, photography, architecture, medicine, 
and from every conceivable culture and every conceivable era. And basically, it's a, a monumental act of hubris attempting to basically create a visual encyclopedia of everything which is obviously not more it's a fairly immodest ambition but um i've been driven to do that i started online in originally on facebook and then Mm -hmm. expanding into instagram and now my work has been transferred into books and so far if i count correctly i think there are six books yeah. And more on the way. So, Ooh, well, I want to hear about that. Before we talk about the future, though, at least when I've been doing my research into your work, you have used this phrase infinite archive for yes. this image yes. library. And I'm curious, is that something that you someday see yourself organizing in some kind of database? Or is that more kind of like just a fantastical archetypal sort of dream? I think it's a fantastical archetypal dream because I am, as anybody who has the dubious pleasure of having to work with me or to kind of edit what I do, will recognise I am hopelessly disorganised when it comes to practical things, when it comes to actually archiving my own material and storing and things like that. There's very little system to what I do (laughs) other than in my own head. Yes. I'm quite good at retrieving images and information, but only I know where to look for them. So I think I'd be a hopeless librarian of an infinite archive, but I hope that enough of it will be made public and may be in in the in the public domain so that people can, by the time that I um, uh, leave this uh, mortal realm, that people will be able to explore it and find mystery and new meaning and new discoveries that's what I want to do and just create a a library where there can be multiple pathways through it so people can revisit and I try to do that on a micro level with social media but in a more expanded level in in the books I've been putting together yes yes I think one of the reasons that I'm so attracted to the way that you work is because I sense a a real kinship. And what I mean by that is my brain is also kind of a kitchen sink, (laughs) bric-a-brac kind of magpie Mm. brain. But I also love variations on a theme. So and how you organize these images is thematically. So even though there's a lot of disparate styles and you're pulling different images from different parts of the world and through time, you're still organizing them by theme. And I always find that principle to be, I don't know, very soothing, very inspiring. So I'd love to hear you talk about your organizational principle. There seems to be some kind of constellating of work that you're doing. Yes. There is actually a a kind of narrative thread to what I'm attempting to do. What I really love, the thing that gives me most pleasure about doing this, is finding correspondences between different images and finding connections and establishing connections. And often these things happen almost by chance and serendipity. I'll be concentrating on a certain theme and suddenly something almost out of the ether, going down various rabbit holes on the internet and looking on various archives and gallery websites or Mm -hmm. museums and libraries, I'll suddenly find the perfect thing. Yes. It'll suddenly present itself. 
I hesitate to use this expression. Sometimes it feels like casting a spell. It yes. does feel analogous to that. Oh, that, Stephen, you know you're barking up the right tree right now. But it yes. feels like some other intelligence is coming through. It's almost like channeling something. Sometimes there are really extraordinary moments of coincidence or serendipity, as I mentioned. That, For example, with a book that's just been recently been published, Underworlds, just before it was about to go to press, a series of panic emails from some a couple of the editorial teams saying, we've got a real problem with rights to... There were certain images, and they were quite key images that we haven't managed to secure the rights to or the estate of the artist. We can't get through to them. And as a communication breakdown, we need replacement images for these urgently. And this is with the book ready to go to press and all the layouts. One of the most laborious and time-consuming aspects of it, and most enjoyable, is the sequencing of things and the juxtaposition of images. Yes. And in this instance, I actually started panicking and thought, well, those are really important images. I'm really distraught that we're having to lose these. Yes. And within half an hour, I'd found the perfect images almost like I was opening myself up and things I'd literally, I'd never seen before. Yes. They, they were just there. Yes. And I think, this is not just hyperbole or anything, I think the book is actually improved by those particular images. Yes. I can relate yeah. to this so much, Stephen, and I won't bore you with the details, but I'll just say like, <laughs> yes, yes, yes to everything you're saying. Okay, keep going, great. keep going. And that's, that's great. Thank you. To me, it's the overall pattern is the key. Individual images are important, but it's the totality of everything. Sometimes I will post things on social media and say, oh, really, I, I like that. I never haven't seen that painting or that photograph or that illustration before, and I'll post it. And then I'll post something next to it and I think, oh, my God, if I look at that painting and that, the painting I posted before it, there are elements in common or there are features in common. That might feature a comet or an actual constellation. Yes. And I didn't realize that this other image also features that. And there's something incredible that happens with those correspondences. It's like when you rub two sticks together and it makes a spark, right? It's yes. like there's something, yes. some new energy, some alchemical yes. third thing that yes, seems definitely. to come through, right? I find it quite embarrassing and people have made fun of me. I, have, I can't remember who it was. Somebody described me as an image alchemist. Yes. I love that, but I thought, well, yeah, I'm slightly reluctant to accept that. <laughs> oh, because you're British, that's why. <laughs> but I want the British sort of self-deprecation. I know. I, not... <laughs> I do have quite a large ego, despite <laughs> that kind of... Duly noted, duly noted. <laughs> well, I'm going to inflate your ego just a little bit more and say, like, I see the work that you're doing kind of in line with people like Abby Varberg comes to mind. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about and I'm uh, going yes, to I'm going to mangle her name. But I love this artist, Olga Freud, Captain, who oh, God, she yes. began uh, the Archive for Research in Archetypal Symbolism or ARIS. And, yes. and listeners will know that the Tashin Book of Symbols is, you mm -hmm. know, all those images are pulled from ARIS. Yeah. I was thinking about even the collagist Jess, Jess Collins. Yes. And so who are some of the other people who are doing this or were doing this image alchemy that you feel a kinship with? Is there anybody else? Warburg, definitely. That would be what I would aim for, the Warburg Atlas. Yes. Can you explain what that is for people listening? 
he was basically an art historian, but he was actually, he was a cultural historian rather than art and specializing in history and things. And he actually created this by cutting out images from books and things to create an archive. He would look at works of art, starting with the art of classical Europe, basically. Mm-hmm classical Greece and Rome, and then going on to Egypt, and finding tropes and things and gestures and the way of portraying something that were common. He would actually place them together on his huge boards. And by placing them together, you could see that an artist or sculptor working a thousand years apart and 2,000 miles away from another artist is creating exactly the same thing. And mm-hmm. it was what he was trying to create it was kind of like a collective memory, something that tapped into the collective unconscious. Yes. There is a way of pattern making, a way of image making that is common to all people. It was a lifetime's work, but he didn't actually get that far. <laughs> I think it's impossible for one person with that huge research institute to do. The other people that spring to mind, the American artist, California artist, Bruce Connor. Oh, I love his both his collages, but also in particular the collage films he made, experimental films in the 60s, 70s and 80s, which are extraordinary. Occasionally they appear on YouTube and Vimeo, but the estate are very, they monitor things very carefully and they're taken down quite rapidly. But they are remarkable. I I think Dennis Hopper described him as the most important artist of the late 20th century. Just the collage films, it basically found newsreel and creating something extraordinarily magical, Ah. extraordinary. And I've started to do bits and pieces with film and video, and I think I'm going to be doing quite a bit more of that in the future. Oh, Um, how wonderful. It sounds like I've got some sort of awesome Wells-type megalomaniac (laughs) attendant trying to build a media empire. Because I've been invited to do that, and I really enjoy doing that. Uh, and created a, a few videos and for music artists. Thing. Oh, how wonderful. That seemed to go on down quite well. I think that I'm going to be doing more of that. It's really interesting you mentioned, and I'm going to mangle her name too, Olga Frohuber-Capite. Mm-hmm. Because literally earlier this week, I am reaching the final stages of the final bit of the preliminary stages for my next book. I've got hundreds of images that I'm happy with, the editors and designers are happy with, but we haven't got a cover image that really resonates and we think is perfect. And immediately I was drawn, I thought, Olga Frobe Capita. So I was looking, going through what everything I could find by her, probably Monday or Tuesday this week. So that's quite a, that's a an amazing synchronicity. Yes. Well, well, yeah. I will reveal that I actually own a few of her prints. Oh, do you? Well, they were uh, gifted to me in exchange for doing some writing. The gallery couldn't pay me, but they were like, well, we right. have these prints. And I was oh, like, wow. I would so much rather have yeah. some work by her. So it's really wonderful to see her getting her due. The last person who I feel like I need to bring into our chat is Harry Smith, who's having quite a resurgence right now. There's a big show of his work at the Whitney and a great biography about him has just come out. Just thinking about someone who is pulling together all of these different streams Mm. of magic and imagery and making films out of them and Mm. working across different kinds of media, too. So I didn't know if he's somebody who you... I've been obsessed particularly with... In the past, it's been very difficult to actually find, see his actual artworks, Mm. but been obsessed with the films, Heaven and Earth, Magic and things. 
How fabulous. On that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The Witch Wave is sponsored by BetterHelp. So, as you can hear, I'm under the weather. And one of the gifts that I'm giving myself is to be extra tender with myself during gift giving season. There are so many people that I give gifts to over the holiday season. My husband's birthday is in December, not to mention my family celebrates Hanukkah, his family celebrates Christmas, there's solstice to celebrate in there. And giving gifts gives me a lot of joy. But the holidays are a great time and frankly, an important time to give a gift to yourself. And therapy can be one of those gifts. Believe me, therapy is one of the best gifts I have been giving to myself for years and years now. It's a gift because it's an act of self-love and self-care. And it's frankly a gift to other people too, because when I'm feeling better, when I'm feeling nourished, when I'm taking care of myself, then I'm better able to be generous with other people. So I highly recommend therapy, and if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp is entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. And all you have to do to get started is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time at no extra charge. So, in this season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash WitchWave. This season of The Witch Wave is brought to you in part by Sphere and Sundry an astro-magical atelier where you can get expertly elected materia magica, oils, incense, bath salts, salves, inks, beauty oils, and more, which have been ritually crafted during rare, powerful, and benefic astrological configurations. And oh my word, I can tell you firsthand, this is the stuff. These formulas are chosen in accord with the strict requirements of the talismanic tradition outlined in the Picatrix and other ancient grimoires, meaning you can benefit from the power of amazing astrological transits even when the stars haven't aligned. These are incredible tools for witches who are looking to embrace the manifestations and results of their spell work, especially the Luna in Cancer series. And I myself have the Luna in Cancer incense, and it is a dream to use for any kind of lunar magic. Venus Materia can be used for love, glamour, and attraction. Regulus for fame and recognition, Asclepius for healing and transformation, and Deneb Algedi for protection. 
I also used several of Sphere and Sundry's magical products on site in Greece during our group rituals, and they were so potent and so exquisite. I can't say enough good things about them. Since 2018, Sphere and Sundry have been a key driver in the rising tide of popularity and interest in astrological magic, amassing over 5,000 five-star reviews and field reports on their website. Most orders ship within one business day, and Sphere and Sundry is also well known for their incredible customer service as they are their magical results, and I can attest to that as well. Learn more and get $10 off your first order at spheresundry.com using the code WITCHWAVE. That's spheresundry.com, S-P-H-E-R-E-A-N-D-S-U-N-D-R-Y.com and use code WITCHWAVE for $10 off your first order. Hi, Witch Wavers. I have exciting news. At long last, we have some new Witch Wave merch available for you now through TeePublic. We decided to go with TeePublic for our new Witch Wave merch because it is a print-on-demand site, which means you can get different variations of the Witch Wave logo printed on t-shirts, mugs, totes, stickers, magnets, notebooks, oh my gods, the sky's the limit. And the shirts come in different styles and fabrics and colors and are available in sizes small through 5XL, so you can order whatever you'll feel you're most magical in. So head on over to witchwavepodcast.com slash shop. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today I'm speaking with Stephen Elcock. So Stephen... I actually first encountered your beautiful book, and I believe it's your first book of images called All Good Things in the Wild. Uh, This was at the Met Museum gift shop many years ago, and that book is actually what led me to your Instagram account and so on. So I'd love to hear kind of the origin story of how that book came to be and, and maybe that's a way for you to even talk about the work you were doing, which led to the book. I suppose I started posting things on social media at the time in my life, probably 2010, when I was living in pretty dismal circumstances. It was a sort of dark time of my life. I'd had a sort of decade of upheaval and all this kind of stuff. I sort of crashed and burned and I became very, very ill. And at one point I was told that I had three months to live. Mm. I was housebound and kind of in bed for a while. And I was also quite isolated then. And at the time, it was when Facebook had just was was still quite popular and people were still quite enthused by it. Mm. I had no desire whatsoever to have anything to do with anything like that uh, until one of my sisters twisted my arm and just kept on and on, but persisted in trying to persuade me to join Facebook. And I eventually succumbed. And I actually found that I, I quite enjoyed it. I connected with people I hadn't seen for years and new people and new friends and then and also people from all over the world and often people I'd really admired from a distance for a long time after a few months my health was improving and things and I started I realized that it was as much a 
a visual medium as a verbal medium. Mm-hmm. And so I started posting images rather than sort of facetious or snarky comments. Mm-hmm. And the response was quite remarkable. And what I particularly liked was creating themed albums, which you could do then with Facebook. Now they've made it impossible. It's completely user-unfriendly. Mm-hmm. And I loved the idea that I could create these things, these theme things that could be ever expanding. So there were albums with literally tens of thousands of images. I realized that this is possibly, God, God, I found my vocation here because in the past I'd done things. I've been in the music business for a while as a musician. I'd worked in publishing. I worked as a bookseller for quite a long time. Yes. When I worked in publishing, I, I actually, sort of by default, I actually ended up working for a lot of art publishers. Mm. So my background is not in the arts, in, in visual art. Uh, my background's more like in literature. Although, Stephen, let me just jump in and say that I have read that you did quite a lot of collage, though. And I think collage, I mean, it's definitely an art practice. Yes. And you certainly have that sensibility of like collection and Mm. cutting things out and putting them together so I see that as very artful yes I did love collecting images and I had I vandalized books and I vandalized my poor parents on magazines and things I was I would (laughs) obsessively go through them even before they'd read them much to their chagrin I would just tear and I and I had bags and boxes full of images right the purpose of which I knew what I wanted them for and I knew I wanted to make these massive collages but I caused a lot of upset I used to destroy some Marvel comics and things yeah and then later the sort of underground press and sort of punk press things that's very foolish and short-sighted of me because if I had that stuff now I could have retired and been a rich rich guy (laughs) years ago if I still had all these old like Silver Surfer magazines and old copies of Sniffing Glue and things like that (laughs) instead of just tearing them to pieces. Yeah, but I actually love that story because it also speaks to something else that I really love about your approach, which is there's kind of a collapse between high culture and low culture. Like you're putting together images from like medieval manuscripts and, Mm -hmm. you know, all this beautiful artwork you might see in a museum, but you'll juxtapose it with things from pop culture and and yes. you come from this kind of like music sensibility. And mm-hmm. I get the sense you have a little bit of a punk ethos in you yes. somewhere, yes. too. I don't know. That really excites me because for me, I think images don't care if they're in a museum no. exactly. or if they're in a comic book, right? No, exactly. I have fairly highbrow taste in certain things, but I have incredibly lowbrow taste in other things. Right. I love junk as much as I love the highest form of art. Yes, yes. And I've always sort of ricocheted between the two polarities of high art and low art. One of the frustrations about creating books is that a lot of the sort of low culture and popular culture is really difficult to include in books because of rights issues. Yes. Because if they're owned by big corporations and things, they want phenomenal amounts of money. Yes. There's loads of stuff I would love to include, which is just sort of beyond means at the moment. Understood. So let's talk about these books. You know, you were starting to put these different albums, thematic albums on Facebook. This leads you to your first book, All Good Things. Yes. I see. After I had a certain amount of visibility, the next obvious, I suppose, the logical step as a way to kind of 
turn it into something else. Well, I was being approached by publishers, sort of fairly opportunistically, whose attitude would have been, well, this guy's got 300,000 followers. If only 1% of them buy a book, it's a no risk to yes. publish a book. Yes. But it actually, to me, it was because most of the approaches I had initially, so I'd have meetings with publishing with editorial directors and things, what they would do is they'd have a look at Facebook and think, which images have the, have the most likes? Ah, animals seem to be popular. So oh, they would yeah, say, yeah, yeah. anything featuring wildlife, would you do a book of animals? Well, what the hell's that? <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly. This album here of uh, book covers is popular. Can you do a history of the book? Right. Well, no, I can't in 200 pages. Right. And so I turned down some very big international publishers before setting the first publisher I who published all good things was a small independent publisher who had approached me and she'd put together this wonderful proposal she thought carefully about how what I do could be translated in a sensitive and appropriate way into a book form she was great to work with and over the course of two or three meetings I came up with the idea of all good things which I like the simplicity of the concept in that it's a journey through the 12 realms of creation and it's it's very much based on an English medieval manuscript by author and polymath James Palmer who wrote a book called Omne Bonum which translates as all good things really mm. which was the first attempt to create an encyclopedia in early English language I loved his structure which was starting at the lowest level of creation and leading up to heaven, but via looking at the mineral world, the plant world, the animal world, the spiritual world, the world of people, so world of commerce, trade and society, and then up to through religion and then through hell and up to eventual salvation and the sublime. Yes. And the outer reaches of the cosmos. And I just love the simplicity of that structure. Yes. And it's such a beautiful book. It's very, it's like a visual compendium of the cosmos, if you will. Like, it's so comprehensive and the connections you. you make visually are so thrilling. And then you do these other books that to me feel even more, I mean, I would call them spiritual. You have the book of change, mm -hmm. you have the cosmic dance, and then, of course, your new book, Underworlds, which I want yes. to dive into, mm -hmm. pun intended. But it feels like these books are variations on themes that are about, like, the meaning of life or our mm -hmm. place in the universe. Do these books feel like doing spiritual work for you? Uh, yes. I would like them to be as, as a tools for people to orient themselves and a way to find their place in space. I want the books to provide inspiration, but I also want them to, they shouldn't be anodyne and they shouldn't just be reassuring. They need to be challenging aspects and unsettling and disquieting aspects to them. I always try to conclude books with a kind of spiritual message, yes, definitely. Yeah. And sort of to point towards a, a goal of, of self-transformation, a yes. transformation both of the individual and of society. Mm -hmm. One thing that really bugs me, a constant complaint that I get, particularly on Facebook, is if I post something that may be more overtly political than the usual stuff I post, which to me always everything I post has a political intent. Mm -hmm. So people say, oh, stick to posting pictures. Stop 
getting involved with politics, stop making political statements. And to me, everything I do is a political statement. Everything, everything mm. I post has politics in its broadest sense. And it's about, I want to create a vision of the world as I would hope it could be rather than the world as it is. I want to create a vision of possibility and I hope that people can find consolation in that. The Book of Change, which is my second book, mm -hmm. I had a very difficult birth, that book, because I had a serious accident mm. during its conception. And then there was lockdown and the first, the first, the COVID. And it's the most overt political statement that I've created. And I'm very, very proud of that book. That hasn't had the attention that my other books have received. And I'm not quite sure why. Oh, I love that book. I love that book. I mean, I have all your yeah. books, but that one I thought was <laughs> so special. And I appreciated the fact that you had this overt yes political but also i would say spiritual message mm. that you mm. were trying to really communicate to us via images and also we should say you do a lot of your own beautiful writing throughout your books mm -hmm. you pull quotes mm. from all different places across literature and through time and space i mean there are these beautiful kind of comprehensive i think spells visual spells is a, is a great way to put that so i want to talk about the new book underworlds you know, this episode is going to be airing right around winter solstice in the Northern Hemisphere. That is, of course, the darkest, longest yes, night, yes. the shortest day. And so we're in this moment of darkness, literally. I think we're in a moment of darkness politically mm. and globally in a yes. lot of ways. So what made you decide to focus your next visual book on Underworlds? The Underworlds is part of a kind of trilogy, an informal trilogy. The book that preceded it, The Cosmic Dance, is about lots of things, but in essence, it's a journey from microcosm to macrocosm, and it's a journey of infinity into the outer universe and outer worlds. And Underworlds was designed as the opposite of that. So exploring inner space, as well as literal underworlds, as well as psychological and fantastical yes. and fictional underworlds, which are as unknown to us as the expanses of outer space. All life began underwater or underground. Society had an art have its origins, probably in underground. The wealth of, of which shaped the Western world is, and the resources that we extract, and the clothes we wear, and, and the materials which create the places in which we live, they're all products of the earth beneath our feet. So I wanted to explore that extraordinary complexity, both of natural, both of geology and natural features, but also the extraordinary riches and wealth of the earth that we inhabit. Also looking at the kind of perils involved in that and that our exploitation of the underworld could well bring about our doom and bring about our doom very, very quickly in terms of extraction and exploitation of right. raw materials. Right. But I also wanted... Rather than be a book purely about that, I also wanted to combine that because I think there are rich and rewarding ways of finding parallels between the actual physical world and the psychological and subliminal world. So I wanted 
to create a book which would contain images of sewers, but also contain beautiful artwork that encompasses an incarnation of heightened psychological states, whether those be anxiety or existential despair and dread, or whether they be ecstasy and total joy and revelation. Mm-hmm. So it goes from the sewers of the Western world to the depths of the id, and then it does end with rebirth and resurrection. That was sort of conscious because the book was kind of conceived after the final lockdowns and people had been emerging from a kind of enforced hibernation. And I thought things wouldn't be the same again, but they seem to return to normal or business as usual far quicker than I would have imagined. Mm, yes. Stephen, I just want to let listeners know that, you know, you're talking about sewers and darkness and things but it, it's it's a very beautiful book there's crystalline oh, yes, yes. <laughs> caves and you know underwater imagery and just to like shout out a few names of the artists just to give people a picture of how eclectic this is there's images from everybody from Kandinsky, Kara Walker, Gustave Doré, Bosch, Cindy Sherman, John Lurie. There's alchemical manuscripts, Persian miniatures, architectural photographs, geological diagrams. I mean, it's really comprehensive. I find it really beautiful. And obviously, mm. I, I like dark, shadowy things, I, yes. you know, yeah. but I found it to be actually kind of soothing. Mm. You write in the intro, Imagination thrives in darkness, in the borderlands between the conscious and subconscious minds, between light and darkness, desire and reality. And I'd love to hear you expand upon that idea of imagination thriving in darkness, thriving in underworlds. A good example of that in the book just about my favourite section in the book. And I was spoiled for choice of what images to put in there, images of hell and the fearsome depths of the imagination. It's like the old cliche about it's happiness writes white. It's easy to create or paint or write about dark things and dangerous things. And it's far more difficult to write about happy things mm. without becoming twee or, or being diluted. A lot of my favourite art, whether it be visual art or whether it be music or whether it be films, they tend to be things that have a darker side to them. This is such a good synchronicity for me because right now I'm spending a lot of time doing research for my next book. And there is the principle of duende that Lorca writes about, which is like this kind of dark soulfulness. And Lorca writes about how For him, anyway, he finds Duende to be a much more potent sort of inspiring force in his favorite works of art, much more Mm -hmm. so than muses or angels. It's this dark Duende spirit. And it sounds like that's what you're kind of pointing to as well. That's that's pretty far more eloquently denied. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. That's what I hope to embody. All of my books, I hope, will capture something of that. I am prone to dwell on the darker side of things. But only through that can you actually have a true appreciation of the light. You can't have a true appreciation of the light without the acknowledgement of the darker side of things. You really can't. Beautifully said. On that note, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back. This episode of The Witch Wave is brought to you, as it so often is, by the marvelous Mithras Candle. 
fall is here, and with the cool autumn air and darkening evenings comes a radiant tool for creating the perfect sacred setting or cozy moment. Of course, I'm talking about Mithras candles. These pure beeswax lights are inspired by the modern science of photobiology, along with ancient pagan practices and cosmic mysteries. Mithras candles are handmade by my mythic and scientific pals in Philadelphia and come in traditional golden yellow and sensual black hues with other colors and collaborations popping up seasonally. I'm telling you, my friends, you will be hooked like I am once you experience the gorgeous Byzantine hand-dripped style of a Mithras candle and their honeyed floral aroma. Mm. Go to MithrasCandle.com to pick up the perfect glowing addition to your magical moments. And Witchwave listeners get 23% off their first order using offer code WITCH at checkout. That's offer code WITCH at Amazon Magic, I-T-H-R-A-S, Candle.com. That's code WITCH at MithrasCandle.com for 23% off your first order. Would you like even more Witch Wave? Do you wish that you could hear from me and my other magical guests on a weekly basis? And what about doing monthly rituals with yours truly? Then come join me over on Patreon, where you'll get bi-weekly bonus Witch Wave Plus episodes, ad-free Witch Wave episodes, and detailed show notes for all. I also lead a monthly online magical workshop, which you can attend live or watch the recording of at your convenience. Rewards for some tiers also include magical merch and contests where you can win witchly prizes each month, as well as early heads up about my other workshops before they sell out. And you can even sign up for the opportunity to work with me one-on-one. And all backers get access to our exclusive digital coven where you can connect to a community of other wonderful Witchwave witches around the world. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to patreon.com slash witchwave now and sign up. It's a magnificent way to get more magic in your life and to support the show. Thanks so much. Welcome back to The Witch Wave. Today, I'm speaking with Stephen Elcock. So Stephen, I want to spend a little bit more time in the dark with you and talk about this book, Underworlds, and some of the images in it. First of all, the cover has one of my favorite artists work by her. She was actually on The Witch Wave recently. This is was Rit- she? Yes, uh, Rithika Merchant. And you have work by her in the book as well. Mm-hmm. So yes, could you maybe describe this image and tell us what made you decide that that was going to be the cover image? It's an image of transformation, an image of a figure that seems to be literally underground, but sprouting forth are multiple other figures emerging into what appears to be the cosmic sphere. So they're surrounded by comets and constellations and stars and things. What I love about her work, Marithika's work, is that it 
is reminiscent of the great works of symbolism, late 19th, early 20th century, and a lot of the great surrealists. But it puts a completely new 21st century, non-European spin on these things. I was privileged to see a recent exhibition that she Mm. had in London, uh, Mm. probably two or three months ago, Terraformations. And what I love are her vision of what seems to be the next phase of evolution or potential for evolution. Evolution, but not just of humanity, but also of animals and fantastical creatures and also biomorphic forms and plant life and exotic new life bursting forth. And but the image on the cover is slightly unusual for her. It's not particularly representative, but it's perfect for the cover. The cir- I love the, the sort of tondo form, the circular form. Yes, It's simpler than her other work. To me, it conveys the message of the book or what I'm trying to convey in the book perfectly in, in a single beautiful image. Almost like a tree of life, but there are all these multiple personalities or multiple forms emerged from a single thought, single being that is buried and submerged with an eye of enlightenment. Mm, beautifully done. That was that was <laughs> that was quite really? a task that I, I set out she, for you. I, I hope she, uh, if she is, <laughs> you did right by her. You I'd apologise if, <laughs> if my no, that, interpretation that is incorrect. That was well but. done. Very well done. When I saw that. When she posted that on Instagram, I just knew that was the cover for Underworld. Yes, yes. Thankfully and graciously, she gave permission for us to use it. How marvelous. You have another of my favorite paint. I mean, you have many of my favorite pieces in here, but one I was so happy to see is actually early in the book. This is by Nicholas Rerick. It's called Most Sacred Treasure Uh, of the Mountains, painted in 1933. And, you know, I've heard his name pronounced a few different ways. I don't know if you say Rorick. I'm not going to pretend. Okay. (laughs) But I mention him because in New York City, in Manhattan, there's a whole museum of his. And you can see all of his work. And this is a painting of a cave. And it's just filled with crystals and it's just so magical so what are some of your favorite images from this book underworlds i do love that one in terms of artists that should be better known than they are and i was really thrilled to include her i love the glass sculpture by christina bothwell which is towards oh, the end there are two i love her. her oh no, i love the, her one of a deer and one of a woman they're exquisite she sculptures things in glass, but also sometimes I think includes earthenware as well. And they are just the most beautiful objects. Some of them are quite really small. Others are larger than photographs give the impression. It's basically like one figure arising from what appears to be a dead person or an unconscious person or a sleeping person. Yes. It could be resurrection. It could be dream. It could be rebirth. It's a simple image, but it's beautiful and very, very profound. I approached Christina. I sent her a message via Instagram saying, I'm doing this book. I'd love to include your work in it. And she replied and said, that that would be wonderful. But how much is it going to cost me? I don't think I can afford to do it. (laughs) And I said, well, you don't have to pay. We should be paying you. Exactly. Oh, what a darling. I haven't actually had that before with people saying, um, do I have to pay you money to be in the books? No, of course you don't. Several of my favourite images in the book, actually, are um, a mermaid. I, I included three or four mermaids. 
And the, my particular favourite, other than the Spillier, Leon Spillier one, is an image from a 13th century Persian encyclopedia by an extraordinary character who I am quite obsessed with, even though details of his life and biography are sketchy due to the mists of time. I suppose he was a scholar and a polymath and a writer named Al-Khwazwini, and I've mangled that pronunciation, who was born in Persia in the 12th century, but was active in Baghdad when Baghdad was a centre of learning and pioneering advances in all kinds of disciplines from astronomy and medicine, mathematics, cartography and things and mm. he created two great works one of which is the wonders of creation and the miracles of existence which is basically an attempt to create an encyclopedia of everything not, mm. i'm not going to say that rightly, but he, <laughs> yeah. he actually did it doing this sort of 700 years ago attempt to document every living thing mm. but incorporating fantastical creatures as well so there are multiple editions of this and there are many many beautiful editions of this book that were created throughout the islamic world from the 13th century right up to 20th century i think they're probably still editions and the image i chosen is this extraordinarily simple this is an image of a mermaid and the 14th century persian version of his work he was doing things centuries in advance of uh, similar work in, in Europe. It's like sort of several hundred years before the French encyclopedists or the English attempted to create encyclopedias. He was actually doing this. And not only did he create this work, he, his other great work was a book of cartography. Mm. And the maps were incredibly, incredibly accurate and complex compared to the equivalent maps being created in Italy or England or Europe at the time. Mm. What I love is the combination of he was attempted sort of scientific verisimilitude and accuracy, but also with this magical stuff going on, this fantastical element to it. I could spend years just going through various editions of his work. If I had a wish, it, it would be to create a 21st equivalent of the wonders of creation. Ah, I love that, Stephen. I think you're well on your way, I have to say. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm not sure I'll live that long. but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we just have a few more moments left together, but I want to know, what effect does working with a specific theme of images have on you emotionally, psychologically, spiritually? Like, do you feel different working on the Underworld book, for example, than you did working on some of the other books? Do these images affect you? They do, but I see them as part of a single whole. They're all part of my attempt to create an encyclopedia of everything. So I do have to change my mindset. I had to change my mindset quite distinct between cosmic dance and underworlds. And my mood, I've been so obsessed with finding images for underworlds because it wasn't as easy as cosmic dance, the research process. It seems like the obvious thing to say and a really corny thing to say, but I was having to dig deeper into archives and really root around and yeah. to find the things I really wanted to discover. I probably became more unbearable to live with um, <laughs> during the underworld's process, but I'm definitely not the same person I was when I was creating 
all good things, for example, or Book of Change. Sure, I have. Sure. My mood is transformed the more books I create. So That actually leads me to, since you brought up Book of Change, I want to read one more quote from you, and it's a little bit of a longer one, so just hang with me for a second. You write, Every time you retrieve something from the past, you are resurrecting ghosts. By reassembling, repurposing, and repositioning fragments of the past and combining them with new visions and fresh ways of seeing, a collage of unfamiliar, unspoiled possibilities can emerge, exercising the ghosts of struggles, failures, and traumas past, providing glimpses of a better world, of overgrown paths in the clearing of potential roots out of crisis into a brighter, bolder future. And then you say, if art is to have any meaning, relevance, or use in the wider world whatsoever, then it must play its part when it comes to laying these ghosts to rest. And so my second to last question for you is, do you feel as if spiritually or magically, these books are helping to manifest some sort of change in you and in the wider world? I don't necessarily think I can speak for the wider world. I'd like to think so, but definitely it was in myself, definitely. And as that quote mentions about laying ghosts and exorcising ghosts and demons, it's therapy for me and it's cathartic for me to do this stuff and to undertake this work and undertake all this research. I know it resonates with people. I'm not, I'm not because of the feedback I get. So I hope that the other people can find those things within the books. That is what I create them for, partly for myself, my own satisfaction. And I, I derive great pleasure from doing so. But it, it does take quite a, a toll in terms of energy and i have to say that overall the response is very very gratifying so i feel very privileged if anybody responds to to what i do i'm very grateful i certainly respond to them with (laughs) such joy and appreciation thank you as you said, Underworlds ends, spoiler alert, with this resurrection <laughs> and resurfacing at the end. And because it's the solstice right now, I find dwelling in the depth and the darkness of this new book of yours to be incredibly inspiring. It sparks my imagination. It also gives me solace and it gives me hope. So I just wanted to thank you so much for creating it and for creating all of your books. I, I just think they're beautiful and magical and so, so thoughtful. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's very kind. Stephen, Lastly, I know people are going to want to connect with you. Where is the best way for them to do that? Feel free to plug away anything you would like to plug <laughs> in terms of, you know, your projects, upcoming projects and so on. Uh, the best way to connect with me is probably via Instagram. I do still use Facebook. So either Facebook or Instagram, if you want to get in touch with me, I do get a lot of messages so I, it does sometimes take me uh, quite a while to respond to anything not being deliberately rude <laughs> i think people understand that sure. i hope people appreciate that well next year there's a lot of things happening that 
There were things I can't mention at the moment. Darn it. I was hoping I'd get a scoop. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, I can't. I actually can't. Uh, I understand. uh, I totally understand. Maybe the sort of non-book things. Probably the big thing next year for me is is the sequel to... Cosmic Dance and Underworlds, which is like the third and final part of this informal trilogy of the realms of being and creation, which is it's coming together really well. I'm really pleased. That I sort of alluded to it earlier. It's a book that's going to be about the five classic elements to so the classical yes. elements. So. Oh, bringing it home. My witchy little heart is singing right now, Stephen. <laughs> Air, fire, earth, water, and ether, essence and oh. spirit. I hope it's a kind of neat way of tying the the books together. At first, I was sceptical about working on this. It was something else I wanted to do. And then when, once I started thinking about it and researching, I just realized this, this is fantastic. There's a scope for this. It's just, it's just fantastic. The way it's looking at the moment, I'm very, very proud and very excited. I'm so excited too. That's wonderful. (laughs) Ooh, and after that, yes. And then after that, there'll be a slight change of not the direction, but a slight change of format and things. And there may be a gap of a year, of, of, of more than a year. The book that I have planned after that is incredibly ambitious and might take longer than my other books and be larger format and things. So, oh my goodness. Well, I hope that you will come back again someday so we can talk about all of those wonderful books and other projects. Until then, Stephen, I wish you you. a very happy solstice, and I thank you so much for being on The Witch Wave. Well, thank you for inviting me, and happy solstice to everyone. That's it for the show. Thank you again to Stephen Elcock for traversing the underworlds with me. And we are officially on the Witch Wave winter break now. Our next episode will be dropping on January 10th. So until then, have a magical, merry everything and a happy, hopeful new year. Do you have questions, feedback, need some witchly advice, or just want to share something magical that happened to you recently? Please do drop us an email or a voice memo at witchwavepodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and you just might make it on the Witch Wire. The Witch Wave is a Phantasmophile production written and produced by me, Pam Grossman. This episode was recorded and edited by Josh Wilcox and or Walter Nordquist and myself. Our theme music is the song Hand and Eye by Lycanthia. Our new Witchwave logo was designed by Thundering. And special thanks, as always, go to Matt Freeman, Laura Antal, and Cece Pascal. You can check out information about this and other episodes on our website and now buy Witchwave merch over at witchwavepodcast.com. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and do consider giving us lots and lots of sparkly stars and glowing reviews. It really, truly does make a difference and helps other people find the show. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at WitchWavePod, and you can check out my witch emoji for iPhone by going to witchemoji.com or downloading it in the App Store. 
My book, Waking the Witch, is available everywhere now. And the witchcraft book I edited and co-authored for Tashin is as well. So thank you for checking those out too. And if you want more Witchwave or you would just like to support the show, please do join us over on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash witchwave. Thank you so much for listening. Witches are the future. I'll catch you next time on The Witch Wave.